The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. Welcome to the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. This podcast is an outreach of Zion Primitive Baptist Church located in the Zion community near Gordo, Alabama. I'm Elder Chris McCoon. I serve as pastor of Zion Church. We're a congregation of believers who trust in the simple message of God's sovereign grace, where families come together to worship God in spirit and in truth through the simplicity of preaching, praying, and singing. Zion Primitive Baptist Church is located at 9487 County Road 49, Gordo, Alabama. If you live in the Gordo area or if you are visiting in the area, please join us for worship. We meet every Sunday at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and on the first and third Wednesday evenings at 630 p.m. In yesterday's message, we began to look at the topic of divine preservation as it pertains to the English translation of the scriptures. We've already seen that God inspired his holy word, but we've discovered that if he didn't preserve his inspired word, then it wouldn't help us too much, would it? Thankfully, we can be confident based upon scripture and upon all the evidence in the historical record that we do have God's preserved, inspired word in English through the King James translation. Today, we continue looking at the reliability of the King James translation by focusing upon the methodology and upon the motives of the King James translators in contrast to the rest of the translations. But first, we have a song selection that I hope you enjoy. After the song, please stay tuned for another message of God's sovereign grace from the Zion Primitive Baptist Church pulpit. Lord, how can my refuge So I could go on and on about this, but we're gonna we're gonna we don't have time. But just I encourage you to do your own research about this. But let me just say this to you: the King James Bible is based upon those that line of of texts that we know as the Textus Receptus. And here we see also 
that as you get on up into, into the 1300s and the 1400s, there was a tradition in England of men trying to translate uh, into English from the Greek Bible. They, and it begins with Wycliffe, and, and we also have Tyndale, as I mentioned, Coverdale, Matthews. Uh, there was the Geneva Bible. That was in 1560. The Wycliffe Bible was in 1388. And ultimately, the King James Bible built upon the work of these earlier English translations, all of which were based on the Textus Receptus. Now, I want to, before we move away from the, the manuscripts of the King James Bible, I want, to, I want to point you to something that happened in the life of, of Tyndale. Tyndale was a man who translated a Bible for the English speakers of that day, and he lost his life for it. That Bible was published in 1522. Later on, he was burned at the stake for what he did in publishing a Bible for the masses. And here's, here's the interesting thing. As he was being led to the martyrdom that he was going to experience, we're told that his very last words as he was about to die was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Some 50, 60 years later, his prayer was answered. In 1604, King James I commissioned the translation that we now know as the King James Bible. Okay, we're talking about the manuscripts of the King James Bible versus the manuscripts of the modern translations. So let's turn to the manuscript of the modern translations. The, the basis for all modern translations, when I say modern, I'm talking about beginning in about 1881 and coming forward to the present time. All modern translations are based upon what's known as the Alexandrian family of texts. The primary source, this, this is the primary source for modern translations. This text has some evidence of Gnostic tampering. You may remember the Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C. The Gnostics were a group who did not believe in the uh, incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, in fact, if you read 1 John, 1 John is, is written in a large part against the Gnostic heresy that was going around even in that day. Paul even wrote against it. Peter wrote against it. John certainly wrote against it. And basically, you know where in 1 John he says, anybody that doesn't confess that Jesus has come in the flesh, it, let him be accursed. Or he is, a, he is antichrist, I believe is the way he puts it exactly. The Gnostics did not believe Jesus came in the flesh. And there was a lot of, of, of manuscripts out there that had Gnostic influence. In 240... A.D., a man named Origen, who was a member of, at that point, it was just the church. It wasn't the Catholic church because the Roman Catholic church did not really come together as an institution until the time of Constantine the emperor, who, who, who married basically church and state. Uh, he converted to Christianity, and, and he sort of co-opted the church into the state. But Origen created, he began to translate Greek manuscripts of the New Testament and translate them into Latin. And in 331 AD, after Constantine had become emperor, and he, he convened the Council of Nicaea, some, some very important uh, meetings of bishops in those days uh, that established some, uh, some truth. I'll have to give him that. Uh, one of the things that he established through one of the councils there, I believe it's the Council of Nicaea, is that the Trinity is the true doctrine of the church. Well, we believe that as well. 
But in 331 A.D., he ordered 50 copies of the Bible. And he, he got uh, a man named Eusebius, who was a Catholic scholar, to compile these copies. Eusebius based his uh, uh, copies upon or some of Origen's works. And, and in that day, you had the Textus Receptus line of texts over here, and you had, the, you had the Alexandrian line of texts over here. Well, Constantine and Eusebius chose the Alexandrian line of texts. Alexandria, I don't have time to go into it, but you can go back and look through history. There was always some problem coming out of Alexandria. Arius, uh, the Arian controversy that said that Jesus was a created being came out of that area. But there was always problems out of there. But they chose the Alexandrian line of text. And ultimately, in 382, a man named Jerome took those manuscripts and created the Vulgate, which became the standard Bible for the Roman Catholic Church. All right, fast forward to 1541. In 1541, you remember, you remember this morning we said there's three different types of manuscripts. There's papyrus, which is just basically paper, a flimsy type of paper. And then there was uh, vellum, which was animal skins, which was easier to preserve. And then you had in the middle there, you had something called a codex, where they took the papyrus and they bound it into a book. In 1541, in the Vatican, in Rome, they found what is known as the Codex Vaticanus. It's a copy of the Bible that is written on 759 leaves of vellum, and the writing style dates back to the 4th century A.D. That Bible is based upon the, 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 the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament version, instead of the Hebrew Masoretic text. You remember this morning? We said there's not been much controversy over the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. The, those old Masoretes, they were scribes, they were faithful, they began to, they, they were uh, very uh, studious in their uh, pre preservation of the Old Testament in Hebrew. And that's what the King James Bible and the Textus Receptus is based upon. But in the early, I forget, about 100 B.C., sometime in that time, maybe a little earlier than that, um, a Greek Old Testament was commissioned. And according to legend, 70 scholars got together to translate it. Each of them translated it independently of the other, and it came out identical. And, and of course, there's, that's a legend. <laughs> that's, that's likely not true. But in any event, it differed in places from the old Hebrew text. Well, this Codex Vaticanus is based upon that Septuagint. It's to the Hebrew Masoretic text as far as the Old Testament goes, and it's based upon the Alexandrian line of manuscripts as far as the New Testament goes. And it differs significantly from the Textus Receptus. I'll give you a good example, and we'll come back to that at some point in the future, either tonight or in another message. Mark chapter 16 and verse 10 and following, which is basically 10, 11 verses in the book of Mark at the very end is missing. Those, those 11 verses talk about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're missing from this Codex Vaticanus. The Codex Vaticanus is also missing First and Second Timothy. It's missing Hebrews chapter 9 and verses 15 to the end of the book. It's missing Titus, Philemon, and Revelation. They weren't contained in that book. All right, let's fast forward again from 1541 to 1844. 
1844, there was a man named von Tischendorf who found 43 sheets of what would eventually be known as the Codex Sinaiticus. He went down to a place called St. Catherine's Monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai in Egypt. And while he was there in a wicker basket containing paper from which monks were starting a fire, they had paper in that basket that they were using to start a fire. He found 43 sheets of the Codex Sinaiticus. It's another copy of the scriptures, another copy of the Bible, alleged, purportedly. They were using it to start fire. Eventually, he went back and he discovered the rest of it. And that Codex, that bound copy of the Bible is known as the Codex Sinaiticus. The Alexandrian line of text that ultimately is going to result in uh, the basis of all modern translations primarily is based on the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus. In 1859, as I said, he found the rest of that Codex. He took it back to his sponsor, who was Tsar, Tsar Alexander II of Russia. It stayed in Russia until 1933, which was after the communist takeover, when Russia sold the Codex Sinaiticus back to the British Museum in London. I know that's a lot of dates, but remember, 1541, they found the Codex Vaticanus in the Vatican. 18, 1844, they found the Codex Sinaiticus, both complete copies or mostly complete copies of what purported to be the Bible uh, in, in, in Greek. And by the way, it's believed by many scholars that the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus were two, maybe the only two surviving of those 50 copies that were ordered by Constantine back in 331. Remember, they were ordered by Constantine. They were compiled by Eusebius based on the corrupt Alexandrian line of manuscripts. Which brings us to 1881. In 1881, two men named Westcott and Hort published a Greek New Testament based on these Alexandrian texts, primarily those two codexes. I'll come back to that in a minute. That, co that 1881 Greek New Testament was the first new Greek New Testament that had been published since the Textus Receptus, which had been accepted down through all the centuries of time. So let me, let me, let me sort of wrap all this part up. I'm clearly going to have to spend another sermon or two on this. What's, what's the arguments in favor of the Alexandrian text versus the Textus Receptus? Well, the, the primary argument in favor of those, that new found text is that both of those date to back into the 4th century. They're, the old, they're older. They sat there, one of them in the Vatican and one of them in this monastery down in Sinai for several centuries, sort of on the sidelines, and oh, now they're found, so they must be, since they're oldest, they must be the best. But you remember what I said earlier about the different types of manuscripts that they had, that papyrus was the most flimsy, papyrus is the most flimsy form of that. What happens to papyrus as you use it? Well, what happens to paper as you use it? Kind of wears out, doesn't it? 
The more you use it, the more it wears out. The more you use so I, I've had I've had, as I said this morning, this is probably the, the fifth or sixth Bible I've had in my life. I, I I'm rough on Bibles. I'm rough on Bibles. I, I I've I've torn up and used up more uh, than I probably should. I've probably been rougher than I should be on it. But I'm glad, in a way, because it shows you I'm using it. <laughs> Your Bible ought not to be a trophy set up on a shelf. It ought, you know, what's, what book in your library is the most well-preserved? It's the one you use the least. There's books in my library that are in perfect condition. You know why? Because I never look at them. <laughs> I'm not interested in them. I've got other books like this book and others that I'm very interested in. There's certain authors I enjoy, and I wear those out. I've had to buy another copy of a couple of books. My point is this. All the scholars are like, well, that's the oldest version. That's the... There's a reason. You remember I told you the, the Codex Sinaiticus was in a wastebasket, a wicker basket like what they use for waste. The more reliable transcripts were worn out by centuries of copying. That's why they copied them, because they were reliable. Because they were the ones that contained the most accurate uh, representation of what the apostles and the other writers of the Old and New Testament wrote. And remember, we said earlier, God never promised to preserve the originals. He didn't say, well, okay, I have inspired all scripture that was originally written down is inspired of God. That's not what he said. He said all scripture. We've, I'm not going to go back through all that. We've, we've seen that Paul thought there was a preserved word in his day. Jesus thought his words were preserved, that were going to be preserved, that uh, David thought that the words of, of God were going to be preserved. Beloved, we have a preserved word today, and it's been divinely, providentially preserved. He didn't promise to preserve the originals, but he did promise to preserve his words. The Alexandrian line of texts is the basis of pretty much all modern translations, including, to a lesser extent, the New King James Version. But even the New King James Version, which was completed in 1983, used, it used the KJV as a model, but it drew heavily from the Alexandrian line of texts. I don't have time tonight to get into the methodology. I want to come back to this. I want to talk a little more about it. I want to talk to you about the motives behind these translators. What I want to do, though, just for a few minutes before we go, before we leave this, you know, one of the things about determining which version is the version that you need to rely on, it's kind of like the old saying, the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. And what I've done, and I hope what you'll do sometime, is you'll look at some of these modern translations, and I'm going to pick on one in particular, the New International Version. I don't mean to offend you if you use an NIV. Uh, I don't apologize for what I'm saying, though, because I, because I think you're going to see, as we look at a few verses here, that there are problems with the NIV. Okay? See, there are some problems with modern translations where they change the meaning of verses. First of all, the NIV completely leaves out 16 verses. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 11 in the King James Version says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Not in the NIV. Mark 15 and verse 28, And the Scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Not in the NIV. 
In Mark chapter 16 and verses 9 through 20, as I've already mentioned, it's in there, but there's an in-text note that says in the NIV and in many other modern versions, but I'm picking on the NIV, the most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16 and verses 9 through 20, immediately casting doubt upon King James Version. John 5 and verse 4, which mentions the angel troubling the water there at the pool of Bethesda, is eliminated from the, from the NIV. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 37, which I'm going to turn and read because I, I meant to uh, write it down. But in Acts, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 37, this is the confession of the Ethiopian eunuch there with Philip. Now listen to what he says. In the King James Version, Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's a pretty strong statement about the lordship, the, the divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That confession of faith is left out of the NIV. More, one of the most important ones. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7, there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father and the Word and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. In the NIV, there's one little phrase in verse 7, and then it skips to verse 8. For there are three that testify. If you look at the NIV, 1 John 5 and 7 says, there are three that testify, and that's all. And then it skips to verse 8. The spirit and the water and the blood. And these three are in agreement, which is talking about here on earth. And by the way, uh, the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, says the spirit is the witness because the spirit is the truth. It's completely changed there. There are many other verses that are changed from the, NIV, from the KJV to the NIV. The NIV took the word hell completely out of the Old Testament. And nine times they took it out of the New Testament. Even in the New King James Version, the use of heaven, hell, and blood are vastly reduced. In Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, listen to, listen to what it says here. In the, in the, you, you're probably well familiar with this verse. I preached from it recently. In Genesis chapter 49 in verse 10, as Jacob is blessing his grandchildren there, or his children there, rather, this is what he says. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. In the NIV, it reads like this. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nation is his. Where's Shiloh in that? You know what Shiloh is? Shiloh is he that brings peace. Shiloh is the embodiment of peace. Shiloh is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's left out. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 25, after Joseph has had the encounter with the angel who said that... Uh, he should fear not to take unto him Mary, his wife. We're told that after that, you know, that's that great statement there. She shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Down in verse 25 
Our King James Bible says, He knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. In Matthew 1 and verse Matthew 1 and verse 25 in the, uh, in the NIV, it says, He did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. A son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Not a firstborn son. A son. Look at, look at Luke. Look at Luke chapter 1. Look at Luke chapter 1 and verse 15. This is, this is where we're told the account of Zacharias, the priest, and his wife, Elizabeth, who couldn't have children, and then she became pregnant uh, miraculously. Uh, God restored her womb to be able to conceive. And in verse 15, the angel's talking about John the Baptist, who was to be that child, and tells Zacharias, he shall be great, in our, in our King James Version, he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. Now notice this. In the NIV it says, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. From birth. The question is, he, is he born again in his mother's womb? Or is it after he's born into this world? You see, there, there's a change there. You know, that's, a big, that's important to us, is it not? That we understand that he leaped for joy in his mother's womb, that he was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. That tells us about the new birth and how it's done without the means of men and apart and separate from the hearing of the gospel. But here, it eliminates that. There's several others here, and uh, I don't want to uh, belabor it too much, but I do, I do want to take you over to, to, um, to one place in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. And I just want you to see what the new versions are doing to the importance of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Over in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14. Our sweet Precious old King James Bible says, In whom we have redemption. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. In whom we have redemption through His blood. Even the forgiveness of sins. In the NIV, it reads, In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. There's no blood in the NIV. There's no blood sacrifice in the NIV. So many places in that version, it eliminates the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is divine. It takes away from that. It also takes away the fact that he had to die. He had to shed his blood for our sins. There's so much more we could talk about, but I don't have time tonight. Lord willing, maybe I'll come back because I do want to talk about the methodology and the motives, both of the KJV translators and the modern translations. I know this has been a lot of historical information. I know it's a little different than most messages that I've ever tried to preach, but I believe it's so important that we be able to have confidence that we have been given the Word of God through the divine providence of God and that we can rely on it. And, and one thing we're going to find as we look at this is that from 1881 forward, when Westcott and Hort came up with their new 
Greek New Testament. And all these other translations started being put out there. So many other, you know, the, the basis of so much scholarship in the world today is founded upon rationalism. And, and it's, it, it has to, has to do with truth being relative. Well, notice what's happened in the world since the 1800s. Notice, do you remember a man named Darwin? A man named Darwin came up with his um, theory of evolution in the 1800s. About the same time he was coming up with his theory of evolution, the way that they approached uh, study of the Bible, especially in Germany, Germany is where it really arose. Instead of uh, approaching it reverently and with faith and with humility, they began to dissect the scriptures and begin to uh, attack them in many ways and, 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 and tear them apart. And, and notice, so you had, you had Darwinism on, in England and you had rationalism on the continent. And, and at the same time, these new, these new versions are coming out and they're watering down. They're watering down what the good old King James Version was giving us. You know, there are versions out there today that if I read it to you, and I may do that in a future message, you wouldn't even recognize what's being said. Let us have confidence that what we have is the divinely inspired and divinely preserved Word of God. Thank you for joining us today on the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. I hope the message has been uplifting and beneficial to you and that the Lord will continue to bless you to grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. Join us again tomorrow for another message of God's sovereign grace. If you would like to subscribe to our website, please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact the church at zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. That's zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. Or you can email me directly at jchrismacool at gmail.com. That's the letter J-C-H-R-I-S-M-C-C-O-O-L at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you is my prayer. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.